Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode number eight being recorded on January 6th, 2016, our first show of 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year to you, Jason. Hope you had a great one. You went, uh, you had a trip to California, and I think you're out in Vegas at CS now, right? I am indeed. Um, me and 170,000 of my fellow geeks all uh, trying to get cell phone service. And fighting for Uber slash taxis. Exactly. The first year of Uber here in Las Vegas. That's one of the big new product launches, apparently, at CES. Has it helped with the taxi line problem at CES? Uh, minorly. It's super helpful for uh, getting rides from places other than at the convention center. There's so much conven- congestion getting in and out of the convention center that I'm not sure Uber helps particularly much. And they're, they are sort of a redheaded stepchild here. They're They've been given designated loading zones, which aren't the most convenient locations in most cases. Kind of out by the dumpsters, kind of behind the convention center? In many cases, and in many of the hotels, exactly. There's like a, a new designated like ride share area that Lyft and, and Uber can share. Interesting. Um, you were in Seattle over the holiday, were you not? I was, yeah. We had a good trip. It was kind of more of a fun thing versus work, but I did stop into the Amazon bookstore, so that was cool to finally see that after all the hype. Gotcha. And did it live up to that? I thought it was pretty good. It, you know, it had. Uh, it's interesting to see kind of omni-channel done the Amazon way. It, it, the store pulls in a lot of the concepts of the website. So, you know, here's some books in a category that got over four stars. Here's, um, you know, books that are the most most rising in our ranks and that kind of thing. So it's, it's pretty clever. And they, I know you love digital signage and they actually did have a couple of interesting examples of digital signage. I'll, um, I'll send them to you and you can put them up on the tidbits post. Oh, good. I would love to see them. Tell me what's uh, so exciting about CS. Have you, uh, had any hoverboard incidents or anything? I have not. I actually have not seen a huge amount of hoverboards yet, which in some ways is a surprise. They've actually banned all attendees from using hoverboards. Uh, number one, so there, you know, there certainly are no nobody going around the aisles on them. And uh, CES is really spread out uh, across Las Vegas. So the the halls that I have spent the most time in today were not the places you would most expect to see hoverboards. So I've seen a few, and even a couple new iterations of segways. Next week, I'll have had a chance to see all the halls and can maybe give a more complete recap of CES. But one thing that was really encouraging that I noticed in the first day is a lot more of the interesting products this year are sort of open and enable interoperability with other products than I've ever seen at CES before. Normally, when something new gets introduced by a major manufacturer at CES, it's it's a feature that's only supported by that manufacturer. So you know when a automo- when a car company wants to show you that they can open your garage door and park the car, like the car manufacturer makes their own garage door opener and it's the only one that the feature is compatible with. Or maybe they partner with a single manufacturer of garage door openers and and uh, you you know it, it only works with that one product. Um, but but this year at CES, a bunch of the connected car platforms 
we're all leveraging uh, the Amazon Echo product. And so you could fully control your car from your living room by talking to Echo. A bunch of them supported if this, then that. So you could, you know, develop your own applications. And it, it just seemed like many more of the consumer electronics manufacturers have embraced open APIs and services for their products than I've ever seen before, which I think is really encouraging for end users. Cool. So kind of a interoperability, kind of a focus versus closed wall kind of systems. Exactly. So in a way, it's a lot about making the features that have been previously introduced better and more useful than it is about like creating net new products this year. Yeah. How about any anything on the e-commerce front or have you been doing mostly the automotive hall? Uh, so I've been mostly in the central hall, which is like the TVs and AV equipment, and the the north hall, which is the automotive hall. Um, Amazon does have a a small booth, the um, AV hall, but it's really focused on on uh, signing up B two B customers. And there is a an e commerce hall this year, and I haven't had a chance to get to it yet. So we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more next year. But I know Alibaba has a significant presence there, and. The folks that are making the most buzz at the show in the e-commerce space is the MasterPay platform for MasterCard, and I heard that they have a really interesting booth in the South Hall. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. But I can tell you, in Samsung's booth, they're they're showing uh, one of the 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 products from this uh, MasterPass initiative. Uh, they have a smart refrigerator that's pre-integrated with MasterCard payment information and integrated with Fresh Direct. In my web grocer, so you can now, you know, for several years they've been showing these smart refrigerators that can theoretically order products. But this is the first year that they were like really plumbed into real services, so you could actually click a carton of eggs on the front door of the thing, and it took the money out of your credit card and sent the order to Fresh Direct if you happen to live in New York. Wow! Only five thousand dollars. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So. Hopefully no bugs in there so you don't end up with like eight gallons of milk or anything crazy like that. But that, that's cool to have all these things connected and working well together. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an encouraging sign. I, I'm not sure that the use case of uh, ordering groceries while standing in front of my refrigerator is necessarily the, the <laughs> one that gets me most excited. But like, it, it's a common cliched use case here at CES. And so it's, it's, it's at least interesting to see it get a little more real and practical. Yeah, Cool. I'm bummed I couldn't be out there this year. Um, I'm a huge electric car nerd, as you know, and it was interesting to watch the live stream of the Faraday big reveal. Did you uh, go to the Faraday Futures event where they? it's a new electric car company? Did, did you make it to that? I did not make it to the press release uh, where they did the unveil, but I did make it to their booth and got to check out the the new concept car, which is very cool. Yeah, it's kind of like electric Batmobile kind of thing. Exactly, a all white uh, electric Batmobile. So very uh, swoopy and elegant. And we we were joking a little bit, though. You know, for most of the car manufacturers, that the cockpits or dashboards have gotten super digital, and they all have these, you know, huge eighteen to forty inch inch screens in them. And they're you know, Corn, uh, Corning has a concept car that that has an all glass cockpit with no uh, you know tactile controls. And then this this Faraday uh, concept car, which is a beautiful car. The only digital thing in the dash is sort of a clip in the middle of the steering wheel to attach your iPhone to the steering wheel. And uh, we were we were joking a little bit that like an electric car with a thousand horsepower and Facebook on the steering wheel, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, tiny little screen too. How about 
A lot of the other recaps I've read about CES talk about drones and uh, AR, VR being kind of the highlights. And the Oculus Rift went on pre-order today. So have you, uh, you ordered your Rift? I confess I've been pretty swamped. Uh, I fully intended to and maybe will after we record the podcast, but I haven't gotten to it yet. What about yourself? I uh, was very patient, and at 11 o'clock my time, which was 8 a.m. your time, I waited for 30 minutes for a page to load, and it finally did, and I got an order in there. So I don't I don't think I'm first in line, but I'm definitely you know, in the first 30 minutes, whatever that means. Nice. They don't have a booth at this show, but they're, you know, obviously have the most mind share and buzz in the show. So, you know, that's a nice, nice position to be in. Yeah, yeah, you get all the benefit and none of the cost. Got to love that. Uh, so, Scott, since this is a new year, I was uh, going to propose that we start a new tradition. Sure. What do you have in mind? So I'm thinking that we should each make some e-commerce predictions for the coming year so that in the unlikely event that we're still uh, around in a year, um, we can uh, revisit them and see how we did. Unlikely. Come on. We made it past, what, what did you say, seven episodes? Yeah, so we're – that sounds good. I love predictions. So why don't you kick it off? Number one, I think that uh, 2016 is going to be a big year in e-commerce for the consumer packaged goods companies and the grocery stores. So those are two categories that historically have not had much traction and, frankly, haven't had much effort put into them. And uh, I think this is the year that we're going to see folks like Kroger get really serious about e-commerce, and we're going to see an awful lot of the CPG companies get really serious about their direct-to-consumer efforts and primarily through e-commerce. I agree with the trend. Um, one question is, so if I'm a CPG company, you know, like I'll pick on – most of them tend to have kind of what are not traditional e-commerce sweet spot products. They're usually lower ASP and kind of heavy, right? So a can of Pringles or um, – toilet paper or you know whatever whatever uh, condiments or something like that how, how do you think they solve that problem is it kind of in partnership with the grocery stores or do you think that they do an amazon pantry kind of thing or what how do you how do you think they get over that hurdle yeah i think it's a blend of all the above like when you look at the portfolios of most of these companies most of them have some products that are much more suitable for direct to consumer e-commerce than others um, and so obviously i think they'll they'll start with those products like either the products that are have recurring use cases and, you know, uh, have subscriptions or that are high value for their weight. You can certainly imagine that diapers is a, a strong category for e-commerce, whereas gum is probably a tougher sell. But I do think there are going to be some clever partnerships and use cases that we'll see the CPGs try to figure out how to create impulse purchases and move some of those, the lower price point pot products like gum and snacks as well. So cool. We shall see. Or you can laugh at me in a year. Yeah, we'll find out. To go along with that, my number two trend is that the majority of businesses are going to reorganize how they run their e-commerce businesses in 2016. And I think there are going to be two shifts in opposite directions. So I think for most of the retailers that we're familiar with that are already significantly uh, invested in e-commerce, I think we're going to see a lot of them start to uh, shut down their dedicated e-commerce teams and absorb those e-commerce responsibilities back into the main organization. And so instead of having separate digital merchants from the, the retail merchants, I think we're going to see the, the digital merchandising responsibility move into the retail merchandising area. And instead of having separate marketing functions 
you know, marketing for that e-commerce site moves under the CMO, technology moves under the CIO, and all, all of those sorts of things. So I think we're going to see e-commerce become a core part of the main retail business owners' responsibilities for the established e-commerce companies. And at the same time, for a lot of these new companies that are just going to kick off e-commerce, like the CPG guys that we talked about uh, in my last prediction, I think we're going to see them create their first e-commerce function. So we're going to start to see a lot more VPs of e-commerce in the CPGs and grocery stores and, and things like that. Good. And that's, uh, so it's kind of interesting. They're kind of a wave behind each other, I guess. And the, who, what do you usually see when, when the e-commerce kind of separate silo gets dissolved in a retailer? Does it kind of take over or is it kind of a little bit of a shuffling of the deck, a little bit of retail, traditional brick and mortar, a little bit of online or how, how does that usually fall out? Yeah. So at the moment it's, it's gone both ways, right? Like part of this is a little bit of a, internal power struggle that when e-commerce wasn't a very significant part of a retailer's business, the CMO didn't particularly care about it, right? So he's perfectly fine abdicating responsibility for that tiny piece of the budget. But now that driving traffic to that website has become one of the core marketing tools, the CMO wants to own that, right? Like that's a, mm-hmm. a key part of the media budget. That's a key part of brand building. And so they, they want to bring that back in. So where the CMO is digitally savvy or has a lot of digital competency on their team, we're seeing uh, that those legacy guys have, are very successful at, at inheriting that, that responsibility. But in many cases where that was sort of a, a longtime legacy employee that wasn't very digitally savvy, which might have been one of the reasons he, let that, he or she let that responsibility go in the first place, where those guys aren't very successful uh, when they get that responsibility back. And so in many cases, some of those digital leaders that came into the organization when they first set up e-commerce are, you know, getting promoted into those, those C-suite positions. And I, you know, I think last year we saw a couple of uh, digital leaders, you know, become the, uh, even the CEOs of some major retailers. And I think that's a trend that we'll continue to see as well. Cool. What's next? So my, big one that I'm hoping maybe you'll disagree with a little bit is I think that we're going to see the mobile gap that we both talked about close significantly this year. So at the beginning of last year, you were about four times more likely to buy something if you visited an e-commerce site from a desktop browser than a mobile browser. Um, And by the end of this year, you're about three times more likely to buy on a desktop than a mobile. And I think next year that that average across all segments is going to be more like two to one. And so we're going to see, in general, conversion improve on mobile much faster um, than it does on desktop. And I think by the end of next year, we're going to see some major retailers that are actually doing more than 50% of their revenue from mobile mobile browsers. I think I agree with the end point, but I disagree with how we get there. I, th- I think we get there. I just don't see the conversion rates really improving that much. And so I, I think we get there by the, the, just the denominator gets so big that, you know, if, if the traffic gets kind of over 70 or 80%, the conversion rate doesn't have to move much. So you'll just kind of get there. So we'll kind of have to uh, agree to disagree on, on how we get there, but I agree that, that we will probably get there. Do you think we get there as an industry or just kind of saying select retailers? By the end of 2016, I don't think the industry average is 50% of revenue from mobile. I think It'll be 50% of mobile for, 
for retailers that have favorable demographics, right? Like, so, you know, retailers that are catering to slightly more frequent shoppers where, where mobile comes into play more or younger, more digitally native shoppers, you know, I think they'll, they'll do better than, you know, some other, other types of retail. So I don't, I don't think we'll get 50% overall, but, you know, everyone will move closer to that. And, you know, frankly, this might be wishful thinking on my part, but I'm hoping part of the reason is because, we'll get a lot more serious and a lot better about creating mobile shopping experiences. And that's also part of the reason I think the mobile gap closes. And there's a lot of interesting technology out there that the engineers have brought to the party to make mobile experiences better. There are things like mobile accelerated pages, which is this standard that a bunch of uh, firms, including Google and Facebook and Twitter, collaborated on to make mobile experiences much faster to share tags for analytics amongst all the analytics platforms and to do all these things to guarantee much higher performance on mobile sites. But that really requires the retailer to build a mobile site as opposed to building a responsive site that kind of reformats itself to fit into a mobile screen. And so, you know, I think the retailers that have the best mobile conversion rates are going to be the ones that that adopt a lot of those technologies and move beyond just simple responsive design as their their one-size-fits-all solution. Is there an example you can point us to that you've seen that's kind of a retailer on the cutting edge of this trend? Uh, well, at the moment, and I mean, it's not really a fair example, but there, you know, there are a few retailers that have really focused on uh, building a, an audience on their mobile app, right? And then, you know, I think of even a marketplace like Wish, and, you know, obviously the, those, those retailers have been much more successful on mobile. But I, I don't have a great example of retailers that have built really sophisticated mobile websites yet. But I feel like all the requirements, the prerequisites are there to enable retailers to do that. And I think there's a bigger, big enough economic incentive now that it's on the roadmap of a lot of big retailers. Cool. My fourth prediction is kind of a sad one. As we've talked about on several other shows, I am very optimistic about the future of brick and mortar retail. But that being said, you know, I do think we're going to see a lot of retailers um, sort of reshuffle their portfolio and close underperforming stores. And I think that's a a normal, healthy thing. But I do think next year we're going to see at least one very well-known, venerable retail brand either completely uh, go away or get sold in some some sort of fire sale as as they uh, continue to have economic hardships. And you know, certainly at this point, you know, Macy's and Sears would both be potential candidates for that, for example. There was a lot of kind of negativity around JCPenney, but they don't, they, they seem to have come out of that. Are, are they, I don't track them that closely. Are they on the the list there of concern or you think they're probably not in that bucket? I think they are. I don't think they're the most in distress at the moment. I mean, I think they, they stem some of their their most significant challenges. And so they're on a a slight uptick at the moment and that gives them a little more runway. And, you know, frankly, there's even other retailers, like we talk about Best Buy a lot as a a nice turnaround story and how they've really stemmed the tide and the management team there has done a good job of uh, navigating a a challenging category. And in the short run, I think it's a great story, but in the long run, that's a really challenging category to survive as a brick and mortar big box. And, uh, you know, I think, a bunch of those retail concepts are going to have to dramatically evolve. And I, you know, I think they have maybe more than 12 months of, of runway to do that. But you know, some of these guys, I think the runway is starting to get pretty short. And so I do think we'll lose at least one story brand next year. Wow. Yeah, I saw today Macy's was out with a release. I 
I saw a highlight on CNBC that they're they're closing a bunch of stores and and you know, kind of having to cut staff. So yeah, I think they had a really tough holiday, and you know that that sucks. Um, I have to say, like they're responding to it quickly, right? And so maybe that you know that does save them that they take the you know the difficult economic decisions early. But you can imagine there's a bunch of retailers in that similar category. And if some of them are a little slower to, to take some of the austerity measures necessary, you know, it's possible that they suffer before Macy's does. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and the, uh, the press release that I saw also said they're going to take a lot of the savings and put it into omni-channel and e-commerce. So um, there is kind of – it's more of a shifting of dollars is kind of how it was read when I actually kind of saw the company's press release, which was interesting. Yep, and that's a tough one because that's a tactic that it's sort of a, a two-headed tactic, right? Like a really smart, savvy retailer that understands the future would certainly adopt that tactic and say, hey, we're going to you know, start over-investing in, in e-commerce versus our brick and mortar. But that's also the exact same tactic that you know any distressed broke retailer would say as they have to start giving up leases. Yeah, yeah, I agree. To get a little more optimistic with my fifth and final prediction – I do think that 2016 is going to be the year of the cloud for the e-commerce platforms. So there there are a bunch of e-commerce platforms that are natively on the cloud, and I think this is going to be a great year for them. I think Big Commerce and Shopify, I think, uh, you know, there's some interesting more niche platforms like Cloud Crazy that's built on top of the Salesforce.com Force platform. Um, and I think this is going to be a great year for all of them. And I think it's going to be the year that the, the really big enterprise on-prem platforms like SAP Hybris and Oracle, ATG, and uh, IBM WebSphere, I think this is going to be the year that they're going to have to figure out how to make a great cloud offering. Um, or if, they, if they're not able to do that, I think they're really going to lose ground to their competitors. Do you think they'll kind of just do a – it'll be just more of a buying option where they just host it and it's not really uh, multi-tenant per se? Or do you think it's a total – Re-architecture kind of thing. All of them require some meaningful re-architecture to really have a, a, reap most of the benefits of having a cloud infrastructure. For the big enterprise guys, it may or may not be multi-tenant. In fact, it probably won't be. But you know, a lot of the elements of those those SaaS offerings, like the, the ability to quickly onboard a new site, and you know, many of these big e-commerce operators are opening operations for the first time in a bunch of new countries, and so. You know, you, you need to be able to sort of copy and paste those instances and launch new sites and new regions really easily. And at the moment, most of these on-prem things are, you know, major new infrastructure projects to, to even, you know, get a development environment up and running for a new, new region of the world. Yeah, I agree that there's definitely a challenge there for these guys. It's I'm not sure, unless they've been kind of quietly working at it for three or four years, it's going to be hard to see if they do it this year. So I think I think timing may eat you on that prediction. We'll, we'll kind of have to wait and see how it comes out in December. Yeah, uh, totally po- possible that I have some wishful thinking. Um, but what do you think is going to happen this year, Scott? Well, Jason, thanks for asking. So my five predictions, my number one, and we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, is uh, chat commerce. So I think this is going to be a year where kind of come holiday of 16, we spend a lot of time uh, and are surprised by how much commerce is either influenced or happens on on chat commerce. A couple kind of news items that relate to this. There was uh, TechCrunch had an interesting scoop, and I've kind of heard inklings of this from some retailers that have said things like, you know, 
should we be developing a bot for Facebook Messenger? And um, so now it's leaked that uh, there is an SDK out there. It's super secret, but a lot of retailers are, are in the loop on this thing, evidently. And what this SDK does, it's an API that allows you to create bots that tie into Facebook Messenger. And um, what's interesting is there's a whole, allegedly there's a whole set of these trans, you know, these SDK elements that that have transaction capability. So you can, you know, if you're having a customer service chat with someone or whatever the chat is, you can inject a product and it can be purchased right within there. So so I think, you know, Facebook Messenger is probably the one to to watch closely. Um, related to that, we'll we'll probably get an inkling. Um, their big developer conference, as you know, but for our listeners, is called F8, and a lot of Facebookers call it Fate. Uh, and that's going to be April 12th and 13th um, out in the Bay Area. So if if there is going to be a really big push, that's when we'll kind of learn about it. So that that's a prediction we'll be able to kind of keep an eye on this spring. Um, another thing that was kind of interesting is, you know, every year Mark Zuckerberg has kind of his resolution. Last year, I think it was a new book every month or something, kind of a book club. This year he basically said, I'm going to build an AI butler, which I thought was kind of a, you know, when you're – a multi-billionaire, you have really interesting New Year's resolutions, and I just thought that was kind of kind of interesting. That it'd be sure it would be nice to kind of have that resolution. No, I think it's totally cool. I I had a deja vu moment. I don't know if you remember, but like Bill Gates actually had a similar aspiration when he was building this custom home that he wrote about, and it ended up you know the technology was just too rough back then to make it very elegant. So in a, uh, I have much more confidence that that uh, all the tools are in place for for Mark to do a very cool one this year. Yeah, I remember reading that book, and it never said the word internet. They were like trying to – I forget the word he used, um, but it was a very weird book because it kind of like was hinting at the internet, but he like purposely wouldn't use the word internet. It's very strange. Exactly, and you know, the book was unfortunately, I think, entitled The Road Ahead, so it turns out the internet was in the road ahead. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about chat commerce? Do you think it's going to be um, – a flop in 16 or you think it'll kind of hit? No, I, I totally agree. I think the most challenging part is going to be the actual transactions. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not sure across the board we'll, ha- we'll see like huge revenue in terms of people actually conducting transactions through, through check commerce. Although I'm confident in some, some segments it will be really popular, but I think in terms of check commerce as a pre-sales tool and as a customer support tool, I think it's going to get a lot of traction this year. And in fact, if you're an entrepreneur looking for a new business, I think a bunch of retailers are not ready for it um, and aren't going to be in a position to build their own chatbots and services. And so I, I suspect there's going to be a, a nice marketplace for some some vendors to come in and offer those services to retailers that aren't prepared to build them themselves. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, my second prediction, I always have to have an Amazon one, so here it goes. Um, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast. A lot more has happened since we did. We kind of took a week off in there, and there was a lot um, that came out during that week. Um, so this is, you know, I think Amazon's going to make some pretty big moves into logistics. I think, um, I think eventually they'll they'll head on compete with FedEx and UPS, meaning they'll help either individuals or retailers ship packages. I, I think in sixteen, we'll see them kind of selectively prune um, some delivery, some of their own deliveries, kind of their first and you know, kind of their their 
their deliveries uh, to consumers of products, either first party or third party through FBA. Uh, I don't think in 16 they'll get to the point where they offer kind of the whole open network kind of a thing. Um, some of the news items there, um, and I don't know if you saw some of this on vacation, but there was a big Wall Street Journal piece about the relationship between UPS and Amazon kind of falling apart. Um, and I've talked to a couple logistics folks I know, and, and it's kind of interesting. It's all, it's all scuttle, but, but, you know, one of the things that, that I've heard is because Amazon has these sortation centers, they went to UPS and said, Hey, you know, and you're aware of zone pricing where you have kind of zone one, two, and three. I think Amazon kind of said, Hey, everything should be one zone because we're getting the product so close and you, you shouldn't have to move it to your hub because we were pre-sorting it for you. So therefore we want a special price rate. That's kind of like zone one pricing everywhere. Um, and then evidently UPS kind of said, you know, no way. And then, uh, that has kind of caused Amazon to pull the trigger on getting a lot more serious about this stuff. So, so that, that's one kind of angle. Um, you and I have talked about, you know, is there enough capacity out there? And, and if you're at Amazon, you're probably kind of doing some calculations. And if they, let's assume they had a great fourth quarter, uh, you know, there's probably a point in time, maybe it's 2020, maybe it's 2019. I, I don't know. Um, but you know, that a lot of logistics people talk about this. There's a point in time because of just the, the current capacity, FedEx and UPS are adding capacity at a rate that is slower than e-commerce and Amazon's growing two times e-commerce. So therefore they're growing orders of magnitude faster than the UPS and FedEx capabilities. Um, you know, what happens there? um, A lot of people have suggested to me Amazon should just buy the USPS. I don't think that happens. I think that's kind of crazy talk. But um, So I think that's going to be really interesting to watch this year uh, and would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I I absolutely think, I mean, both as a competitive advantage initially and to your point, just to solve the capacity problem, I I think we're going to see Amazon use their software and data analysis to take a lot of the low-hanging fruit logistics away from the third parties and bring that in-house and and take more of that margin for themselves, if nothing else. I do think one limiting factor, I I think we're going to see Amazon invest a lot in, like, their domestic logistics and moving packages around in the U.S. to either, to your point, you know, make it more efficient to just give to the other carriers to deliver the last mile or to deliver, you know, all the way themselves. But a big chunk of, of uh, UPS's business is international freight. And, you know, it, it has occurred to me that that's going to be a tougher nut for Amazon to crack. And, you know, as, as we've talked about, Amazon likes to build these infrastructures and then sell them to third parties. And I think there are lots of retailers that would be happy to pay a cheaper delivery fee to Amazon to have them move the boxes around in the U.S., I think there are a lot less retailers that want to partner with Amazon on international freight when you suddenly have to disclose uh, all the sourcing and pricing information that you do for customs to Amazon in order to, to facilitate them moving your, your packages internationally. So I think domestic logistics is going to be a big big move for Amazon, but I, I, I wonder if it ever gets to, to be a worldwide thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll kind of have to wait and see on the cross-border piece. That That's kind of – and I don't think – that's the majority of Amazon's, you know, business. I, I think it's probably 10% ish or something. It's probably immaterial. Um, my third prediction is around Jet, and uh, there's increasingly large number of naysayers around Jet. I've found here recently, and I don't, I don't know if it's because of some of the, you know, the Wall Street Journal stuff about them having a hard time raising money or something. Um, but I think that you know, there's there's some kind of naysayers out there, and I, I think they're going to be wrong. I think Jet's going to do really well. I think they've got a model that does work. It does have positive 
gross margins and all these kinds of things. Um, and I, uh, I'll kind of put it out there. This is maybe a little controversial, but I think that they do well enough that they get acquired next year. I think there's enough uh, companies that want to catch up on e-commerce and or have uh, you know a counter to what Amazon's doing that we see Jet get acquired next year. So that, that's kind of my perhaps boldest prediction. Yeah, I absolutely think that's a bold one. I'm I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I'm a fan of Jet, and I, I certainly want to see them succeed. But I think if they get acquired next year, it's going to be for a bad reason. It's going to be because it, they're in distress, and it's the only way to continue operations. And I, I don't think they're in trouble because of fundraising or anything. In, in fact, I think there's so many people that want to see a foil to Amazon that it's artificially easy for them to raise money, and they've they've raised a ton of it. Like I, I think in the long run, um, my fear with Jet is simply that their value proposition is a tough one to sell to consumers. That if you're willing to deal with more complexity and complication and, you know, frankly, like delays and more variance in the delivery of product, then we'll help you save money. And I, I think consumers are cost conscious, but I think they're, they're also fundamentally take the path of least resistance. And I think Jet is model it potentially is putting too much of the burden on the consumer. And I think that that makes their value proposition a little nebulous. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. The my fourth prediction is and I can go fast these last two. So um, uh, I think Google this year is going to make a pretty bold move. I think I think that they're going to look back at holiday 15 and have a bit of a bloody nose from Amazon. And at some point they're going to say, you know, and maybe it's part of this alphabet rearrangement that they, they have the flexibility now to do more. But I just feel like um, they're going to do something big in e-commerce this year. Um, and they, I think it'll be surprising and it'll be a pretty bold move. But I, I think they kind of have to. I think they're at this point where um, you know, Amazon's pulling away and, and taking a lot of share of product search from them that they're, they're going to almost be uh, on the existential kind of crisis mode here this year. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out for Google. Interesting. Yeah, I certainly think they have to do something. E-commerce is a huge part of their revenue. The majority of those ads are for folks that are selling goods online. Um, and so I think it's, it's very dangerous for them to continue to let uh, Amazon in particular get get all the traction in that space. So I I do think they need to do something to shake it up. What what's your definition of bold? Like I you know I, I think they're going to offer buy buttons and I think they'll have some some limited success with that. But that doesn't feel bold to me. Are you? I mean, are you talking about like literally creating an e commerce offering or a platform or or a service that helps you know Walmart and Target be more competitive with Amazon? Is it something like that? I don't know what it is. It's just kind of a feeling. I think it could be. Um it could be something like that. Uh, I think it's probably more of a big acquisition. So maybe they buy PayPal, or maybe they maybe they're the guys that buy Jet. Um, maybe they, in some way, um, you know, they're just kind of an enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. So maybe there's a partnership there that surprises us. Like maybe they work with Alibaba or something. I, you know, we'll have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to see him buy ShopRunner and turn it into a real viable FBA alternative. Yeah, yeah, that that could be another one. For the record, if that comes true, I'm only giving you half credit on that prediction since you didn't really get very specific. Okay, we'll see. It has to be bold. That's the that's the thing. I don't know if shop runner's bold enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we have to be shocked. 
and then my last prediction is, uh, as you know, Alibaba has been really pushing Singles Day, and um, at this year or in fifteen, they they said next year we're going to make this a big U.S. kind of an event, um, and I just don't think it's going to stick. I, I just think that we have our holiday calendar here in the U.S. We're pretty stuck to it. I think retailers may kind of give it a bit of a you know. You know, softball kind of an attempt, just kind of put something up and see how it goes. Um, and then certainly U.S. retailers want to take, you know, advantage of Chinese consumers and there'll be some of that, but I just don't see U.S. retailers and U.S. consumers really kind of getting into the whole single stay thing. I think you are probably right there. I think if they, they find a way to make it relevant in the U.S., it'll be something other than, uh, getting, uh, U.S. consumers to buy a bunch of goods on singles day from, from, uh, for delivery in the U.S. Yep. And I know we're running right up against time, but um, how about any ideas you have of what are, what are some things you want to see this year that probably won't happen? Um, so kind of anti-predictions. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because when you know, you're thinking about what, what you think are the predictions, the, the first thing that came to mind are all these things you wanted to be true, um, but that probably aren't, right? So I, I was desperate to say, hey, this is going to be the year of personalization and we'll finally see retailers leverage all that information we're sharing uh, with them about ourselves to make the experiences better. Um, and, you know, while I'd love that to be true, I, I don't think we're going to see huge, huge progress on personalization this year. Uh, we, we talk an awful lot with retailers about uh, the integration of com- commerce and content and how to, you know, better blend those two kinds of experiences at the moment. You go to a lot of sites and there's kind of a choose your adventure. You click the read tab and you you get a bunch of great content, or you click the shop tab and you get you get commerce experiences. But the two are, are very segregated. Um, and I'd, I'd love to say this is the year we see some great examples of of integrating those two experiences. But I'm not I'm not optimistic that that will be true. I'd love to say this is the year a bunch of the the traditional retailers figure out how to fight back against Amazon and kind of close the growth gap between uh, their their digital operations and Amazon. But I I strongly suspect Amazon is going to widen the gap largely around a lot of the logistics investments that you've already talked about. Obviously, there's a ton of buzz around payments, and I think we're going to see a lot of new payments platforms launch next year. But I don't think next year is the year that any of them win or get you know significant traction. And uh, you know, this quarter we had a lot of talk about buy buttons and you know sort of social commerce, and I, I, I don't think we're going to see any of those become you know really big wins or mainstream this year. How about um, on payments? Do you think Apple Apple Pay um, jumps to websites? And uh, you know, I've always kind of wondered why Apple doesn't have effectively a marketplace, so kind of a, a collection of of e commerce type products that are available through Apple Pay. You, you don't think any of that gets traction in sixteen? I don't. I mean, they have to get there eventually for it to be a successful payment platform, and it, you have to have a solution for the for e commerce on the web, not just on apps. But I, I think Apple's it, uh, certainly more than a year away from being able to do that based on on their security models right now and obviously they do a lot of stuff in uh, in stealth and so it's possible they've been working on this a lot longer than I suspect but I uh, not very optimistic that 2016 is going to be a huge progress year for Apple pay if anything it's going to be the year that Apple pay sees a bunch of competitors with similar strengths and weaknesses to theirs and you know some that will address their weaknesses. Um, so I think it's going to be a crowded, confusing space, and I think that confusion is going to hurt adoption for any of them. Cool. Well, I think that's a good set of predictions. We'll um, we'll immortalize these and, and keep track of them as we go. Uh, I think we're up against time, so should we call it a show? 
I think that's a great idea, Scott. Um, next week, we'll uh, hopefully be able to share a more detailed recap about CES, and that'll also sort of be our pre-NRF uh, show. Sounds good. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 